You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning and welcome to the number one Sunday morning medical show in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, we recently, we won that competition. Unfortunately, unlike the Matildas who just went down to Japan in the Women's World Cup, which is a bit of a tragedy this morning. But we are here for radiotherapy. What a cracker of a show we have for you, our loyal listeners. And those of you who've been following us this year uh, will know that we've had a good men theme. And uh, we have reached... I think the denouement this morning. We have got with us Hunter Johnson and Benson Saulo from the Man Cave. They're the co-founders of of the Man Cave, which is uh, part of a social enterprise designed to increase decision-making capabilities of Australian youth. They work with young males, and we've been talking about that uh, very much on uh, our recent shows here. And to help us explore, we've got the always magnificent Anabolics. Hello, Magziv. How are you, darling? Uh, look, I'm, look, I'm always uplifted by being in your presence. And we've got the enfant terrible of Australian psychiatry, SK. Uh, permission to yell, go tigers at an annoying high well, volume. Well, well, a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing, watching those tigers do what they've been doing. And, of course, on the panel, that other, uh, that tiger acolyte, Kent. Um, uh, and ver- look, he's, he's got a smile. I, I, I don't even think you could, it's It's almost like a gorge, that smile. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and if you're surprised hearing my voice doing the introduction, it is because the ordinarily ever-reliable tall man uh, got caught up in the shower this morning and forgot whilst he, why he was there. And now, he was going to be 15 minutes late. Would anybody notice if we had 15 minutes of dead air on this program? <laughs> well, tall man might. Tall man might. So I'm sure as he's uh, barreling down the highway, he's listening to us now and he's saying, I could be doing this better than them. I'm, I'm more professional than all of those. So... Uh, please uh, buckle up because we have got a cracker of a show for you. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Now, anabolics, big week. Uh, yes, but I was very happy about the um, gay marriage changes in America. That was made my week. It got drowned out by several other horrible things that have happened in the last 48 hours, but I'm just going to keep focusing on the good bits. Can I do that for a little while longer? Well, I think it's very important that we focus on the good bits because those bad bits, they're, oh, they're pretty terrible, aren't they? Hideous. So I'm, I'm just hoping this will be the last domino before um, a big domino falls across the Pacific Ocean and, and our last domino of equal rights for people happens in Australia, which will be none too soon and I feel like every day that goes past we're looking more and more like an old fashioned bunch of farts really so I'm hoping it's going to happen soon. That was my good news this week I think. And SK? Uh, no good news for me this week, uh, if I'm, I'm winding down this month towards uh, a sabbatical that I'm hoping to take in the second half of this year, and uh, my sabbatical project is uh, I've kept everything that I've ever presented on radiotherapy over the past 20 years, and I'm going to sit down in six months and uh, write the, the book on psychiatry and film. So I'm preparing for that, which, uh, if I can arrange leave cover, will go ahead from August. Now, now not 
willing to, uh, really wanting to blow my own trumpet, but didn't I encourage you to do that? Yeah, yeah, you did, and because I'm incapable of independent thought, I (laughs) (laughs) followed your suggestion, and, you know, it's a good opportunity. It's six months to do something that's vaguely work-related, and uh, it's something that I'll really enjoy doing, so I'll devote the next six months of my life to watching a film a day and writing about a film a day. I think this is going to be a wonderful enterprise because when we look back... uh, Anabolics. I mean, some of the wonderful, the wonderful stories that we've heard about film and television on this show. Uh, I think that could be very special. I think it's going to be wonderful. I just think we'll have to probably give away free books next year. Can't you see it coming? I think we'll be doing that quite a bit. Well, it's certainly a marketing opportunity. Yes, and, and thank you for the kind words about my film talks. I think my analysis of Dude, Where's My Car? I think is my favourite. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to ask you because I did think that Dude, Where's My Car? was probably up there in terms of its deep understanding of the the existential crises confronting young people. Yes, I think uh, fans of Hot Tub Time Machine might have a different take on that, but, you know, we're in the, we're in the same ballpark. I'm going to ask you to send me the chapter on Black Swan so I can, um, you know, actually correct it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this could really... I mean, there's, there is scope here for some, some real... Uh, controversy. Um, we've got well, some opportunities. Controversy already. The Black Swan reference. I think uh, Anabolics took reference to my uh, opinion that it was all about menstruation. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A few months ago. I remember that. That was uh, that was. Uh, um, yeah, it was a bit, a bit like a there wrestling. Was blood match. in the studio. There was blood in the studio. Yes. <laughs> move along. Move along. We, move along. Now, what we have. I mean, this morning we've got Hunter Johnson and Benson Saulo, um, both from Man Cave, and welcome, guys. Thank you very much much for having us. I wonder if you'd just tell us a little bit about this enterprise that you're involved in. Absolutely. So, first of all, sincere thank you for the opportunity to be here. So, we run a program uh, which is a social enterprise called The Man Cave, which is around deconstructing masculinity, uh, working on identity with the young people we're working with, developing emotional intelligence and providing practical tools uh, such as mindfulness, self-awareness to guide that very challenging transition from boy to adult. And how did this, how did it start? Where did it come from? Well, I guess we can really look at our own kind of stories and, and uh, what really informed us to develop the Man Cave and work specifically with, uh, with young boys. Um, so for myself personally, I, uh, I grew up in Tamworth in New South Wales, and, uh, which is the land of the Gomorrah people. And, uh, and I was very fortunate actually growing up. So my father's a minister, um, so I had a very strong um, grounding. And uh, the, the school that I went to was the school across the train tracks. You know, we were known for you know, violence. Um, the, we were always you know, on the footy field, was always... Uh, you know, there was always a punch up with us and uh, in the, the private school boys, and there was this very uh, kind of strong notion that uh, respect was actually kind of linked with violence or having you know or being a being a strong physically strong um, young person and uh, and so whilst I had a very strong um, grounding within my family, uh, a lot of my young mates uh, you know they were going off to juvenile detention, so going to juvie, getting in trouble with the law. Um, and then taking, making decisions that weren't necessarily the best decisions for, for them to make, but also um, you know, not actually understanding that there, there is choice that, that exists within our lives. And so my reflection on, I guess, growing up 
was always around well if if we have a strong sense of who we are uh, our, our strong identity you know we can actually make the best decisions around that and uh, i've been very fortunate i was in 2011 i was the australian youth representative to the united nations and uh, i was fortunate to travel right around australia uh, meeting with and engaging young people about 6000 uh, all up face to face another 20000 online and through social media and uh, consistently ranked as number 1 as a issue that's impacting young people um, today uh, is actually mental health and when we look at the statistics around the, the number one killer for, for young men under the age of 25 is suicide. Um, and we, we can, you know, you can really see that, you know, young people are identifying themselves that mental health is something they need to focus on. And yet, what are the avenues that, that are actually out there? So, yeah, there is the um, Beyond Blues, the head spaces that are actually there. But who's actually providing the space or the, yeah, the environment in which these conversations actually happen? And, uh, and I think that's what we bring to the, um, you know, into the space, this really important critical area for, for young people. Yeah, it's funny you should say that, um, you know, you were the public school. I was the private school. So, um, well, which is fascinating that we've ended up together. So I was fortunate enough to grow up in Sydney and had a scholarship to one of the biggest schools in Sydney to play rugby, which is kind of like AFL, but not. And, um, and um, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the mask you live in. My school's motto was to do the manly thing. Um, and I, you know, the training ground for me of my masculinity was the schoolyard, you know. And for, for guys in Australian culture, it's, you know, um, your, your athletic prowess, your sexual conquest, your economic success, and then don't show any emotion, and you're a pretty good Aussie bloke. And for me personally, at the age of 14, that was the mask that was celebrated around me, so I chose to wear it. And um, the scary thing is it started to fit. So I, at my school, I was the youngest player to play first 15 rugby in its 150-year you know, history. We had 2,500 kids at the school, and you know that was a, it was a big platform for me to build my identity around. And... Um, I'm sure you would have heard that New South Wales and Queensland have quite a rivalry and um, I was finally old enough to be picked for uh, I was 15 picked to play um, like a junior state of origin game for um, New South Wales versus Queensland and we also had our biggest school game on that weekend uh, where we used to get 10,000 people come to the game and you know I was year 9 playing with all these year 12s I remember writing an autograph in year 9 <laughs> and I was like I just pretend I didn't know how to do cursive writing yeah. and, um, you just wrote it yeah. and then joined up the letters yeah, afterwards exactly. yeah. <laughs> Don't tell them. Um, and, yeah, for me, personally, it was that was a big definitive moment in my life. And the weekend before that game where it was um, our school game and then also our, our that city versus... Uh, sorry, New South Wales versus Queensland game, uh, my club rugby coach rang me up and said, um, hey, mate, we're, we're playing a team called Hunter's Hill. You've got this. And I was like, that's the worst attempt at a dad joke I've ever heard. But it kind of worked. And I was like, all right, um, sure, I'll, I'll turn up to the game. And I remember arriving at the ground and it was horizontal rain. We're playing... Um, my opposing captain was, you know, six foot four, Tongan bloke, 140 kilos. I was this prepubescent 14-year-old boy. And um, I remember shaking his hand, like, you could actually eat me for breakfast. And um, I caught the ball off the kickoff and I, I usually would have kicked it back and I decided to run it. And somehow... I, I got through everyone and I was going to do one of those side steps where you're not looking and I stepped straight into my opposing captain um, and his knee went in my shin and it broke my leg and this was in the first 10 seconds of the game and um, 
uh, my mum was an hour and a half out of Sydney and she got there before the ambulance. So <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about the mental health... Uh, sorry, the, the health care system in, um, in Sydney, but... Um, Say something about mums, come yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be real. Yeah. And um, so the ambulance didn't... They called it four times and before the ambulance came and um, I eventually got to the hospital um, and they said, you know, we're going we're to operate the next morning. And mum called my uncle, who was an orthopaedic surgeon, and said, what do we do? He said to ask for a guy called Dr. Stephen Ruff. Mum's like, that is not a reassuring name for, for a doctor, but we'll do it. He just finished a 12-hour shift um, and was driving out of the hospital and decided to come back. And he saw me next to another kid who'd also broken his leg, who was sucking on the morphine and was having the time of his life. And uh, me next to him was, you know, in a world of pain. And he said, there's a 5% chance you have something called compartment syndrome. It's where the bone breaks inwards and punctures the muscle, and the muscle will expand for four hours before it strangles itself. So how long has it been? And mum looked at her watch, and she goes, three and a half hours. And he said, right, well, we've got, to, we've got to operate straight away. And to put it in context, the leg pressure, uh, your blood pressure in your leg is usually seven. Mine was 84. And so they had to cut down the sides of my leg um, and let it drain out for three days. And it ended up being uh, a metal rod, uh, six operations, two skin skin grafts, two blood transfusions. But the worst was you're not going to be able to run again. Uh, and as a young guy who'd built my identity around being, you know, the rugby player, that was pretty confronting. Um, but the next, I spent the next two, two months at home, um, sitting on the couch, getting very good at PlayStation, and um, feeling very sorry for myself. And a, a lot of people would say to me, you know, um, you know you're so lucky to, to keep your leg. And um, I was, you know, in a, in a period where reflecting, I said, you know, I was so unlucky for this to, to happen to me. And I, it was a really interesting paradox to, to grow up being like, you know, I've been ripped off of what, you know, was promised to me, um, which is an interesting conversation itself around privilege, which I'm more than happy to go into later. Um, and I got left with a comment from my grandpa who said, you know, if you were that good at sport, imagine if you could push that into something a little more meaningful. And at 16, that means nothing. <laughs> but it sat with me, and that is a comment to this day that really dictates, um, you know, my, my, my future. Uh, before we go, much further, can, can you show me the scar? Uh, I, I can, <laughs> so I've got the, my... Because if you show skinny me yours, yeah. I'll show you mine. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and this is a dangerous game. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I had my upper thigh was taken for a skin graft, um, and then I had two huge teardrop scars put down the sides of my leg, and I was um, very, very self-conscious about that. Um, and... Yeah, so for me, it's interesting because I, I talk about it now as my get-out-of-jail-free card um, because, you know, I realised as the body stopped moving, the brain started to get going. Um, and so for me, you know, I was very fortunate to grow up in a family that really valued education, um, entrepreneurship, social justice, and we had a lot of love, um, which has really guided me through this. But the, the flip side of that is I've got a lot of mates now who I say, you know, how are you going? Yeah, good, mate. Yeah, how, what's, what's going on? Oh, not much. And then a few, a few beers deep, their whole life story opens up. So it's fascinating, the mask that we choose to wear. So for me, that's a constant reminder of, of the work we do, which you know, we're more than happy to unpack as the hour goes on. Can you elaborate on what you see as the components of that mask, either of you? What, what, is, what, what, is, the, what is the mask made up of? I think there's a, an element of being just scared to you know we're so quick to judge others and yet we're so scared to be judged ourselves and so we feel that we need to put 
up a, a you know a, a wall. Yeah. And so for me, I believe that this uh, this mask is actually uh, the, the things that we believe society wants from us. Yeah. And so when Hunter was saying, you know, we've been valuing you know the the ball field, so your success on the ball field in the bedroom and your billfolds, how much money you make. And so if this is something that a young person's growing up and believing that this is what society wants from me, then I need to put up a you know, a wall to say yes, I have all these three things because I'm a I'm a whole person, and this is how we rate whole people. And uh, the the wonderful thing, I guess, the the work that we've been able to do and the young people that we've been able to see and work with is that question. Well, if you really knew me, you'd know this about me. And often we find uh, when we're working in spaces with young boys that they've never actually had the opportunity to be able to talk about these uh, you know deeper issues. And so you're sitting, uh, two mates are sitting side by side. And yeah, they're mates, but at a very superficial level. They don't actually know each other. And, uh, and so that question, if you knew me, you'd really know this. And uh, it's amazing the kind of things that come out and the bonds that can actually be strengthened through that. And, uh, and so, yeah, this, uh, this element of societal pressures is, is very interesting. So, so the mask is being replaced with communication at a basic level. Like you're telling, you're actually... So when you say that the, uh, the mask... Um, that you had uh, was dependent on billfolds, you know, your, 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 the macho machismo. Mm. How, how do you convert that? How do you how do you change that? To, because you know, you're, you, the, these guys must think you're from Mars when you start saying, "Well, tell me about how you feel." You know, the yeah. real honest how you actually feel that the little child inside. So how do yeah. you how do you approach that? Because I imagine that would be incredibly threatening. Absolutely. Uh, and for us, um, Benson and I are both very fortunate to have a, a strong background in facilitation with young people. And I think there's a real difference between traditional teaching and facilitation, whereas perhaps traditional teaching is more rote learn and regurgitate information. And facilitation is around engaging, it's experiential and it's empowering. Um, and for us, uh, through the Man Cave, we use a, a methodology um, from, it's called the Colin James Method. And there's four components to it. So the first is feel, the second is think, the next is do, and the next is commit to. So our workshop, whether it's a talk or a workshop or a full day workshop, is is structured like that. So feel is the emotive why. So that's the buy-in where, the, where it's demonstrated from us where the mask is taken off. So whether it's a story about us and it's, it's generally something that they don't realise that they're being bought into. So it's the hook um, which makes it okay. So that creates a safe space for the young people through the example setting. Then the think is um, the content, the, the statistics, the theory behind what you're doing. So for us it might be around mental health, you know, we, we do an exercise being like, you know, could you just put your hand up if you know someone in your life, whether it's a sister, a brother, a parent, or someone close to you that you've seen struggle with depression? Everyone in the room puts their hand up. We go, it is now a national epidemic. And so that's the emotional buy-in that we work with. And for us, it's very much around the empowerment lens opposed to crisis management, which, like, you know, you look at the, the, the healthcare system, it's, it's very much structured towards Band-Aid solutions. Um, for us, it's... Telling the boys that, you know, instead of waiting for our, our parents or our grandparents to make these decisions for us, imagine if we could be equipped with these skills now instead of waiting till something goes wrong. Um, and so for us, the next component is the do, which is um, the challenge that we throw to the young people. So that's the physical activity. We then acknowledge them um, for them as a person opposed to their performance. And then the commit to is how this is bigger than us in this room right now. This is a, this is a movement that we need to tuck 
partake in. So, but it's, uh, I think the facilitation is definitely the, um, the guiding principle there. It's interesting that you say that, Hunter, and you talk about uh, you know, uh, d- how many people do you know who, who have suffered depression or anxiety. If you ask a group of, uh, of males that, um, um, everyone will know someone. Uh, I was giving one of a, a series of talks on men's health to middle-aged men, men who are um, aged between 40 and 60. And uh, when I give these talks, I, I always start off by saying, how many of you have, uh, have been to see a GP? And 100% put their hands up. How many of you have been to see a physiotherapist? And all middle-aged men have seen a physiotherapist. And then I ask them about if you've seen uh, a cardiologist or uh, a urologist, and uh, most have. And then I say, and how many of you have, put, have seen a psychiatrist? And uh, you might get one out of 150 or 200 people who volunteer to put their hand up. So there is this, the stigma is still there in terms of personal revelation of, uh, of what, you've in fact, what you've in fact done, your own experience. So how do we get the shift from knowing others to outing ourselves as, uh, as having these sort of mental health issues? Uh, I, th- I think for me it's, um, it's, in- it's providing a safe space, one, that young people want to go to, two, that they're allowed to, to ask questions that they've never had the opportunity to ask, and three, is they can walk away with some practical emotional wellbeing tools. And I think it's understanding, for us, it's um, understanding that health is not purely physical. So, you know, if someone, you know, runs down the road and, and, and breaks their leg, we won't tell them to run it off. But if someone has a tough day... You know, our, you'll be right. Don't worry about it. And I think for us, it's that holistic understanding of, of health as a fifty-fifty split is very, very important. And uh, and so with this uh, piece of facilitation, it's uh, understanding the knowledge is already in the group, and our role as facilitators is actually just to create that space in which these conversations can happen at a very safe level. And uh, and so often, you know, young people understand, you know, are impacted by depression or anxiety. A lot of young people suffering from, um, I guess, different, very level, uh, varying levels of anxiety, and uh, and aren't really provided the space to be able to talk about these things. And and it is actually nice, actually coming in, kind of like aliens, where we're, we're landing in this uh, in, a, in a space and just asking these particular questions because these are questions that aren't being asked uh, generally for these young people but then we're also young people ourselves and we can share a lot of our um, you know our personal stories which already has that kind of connect and like like hunter said when he asked that question uh, which is the hook that we really um, you know lead with is who do you know that suffered from depression and the next level of that is actually who's ever felt helpless uh, in this process, or who's ever felt hope, hope, um, helpless uh, standing by, and again, hands go up, and uh, and for me, that's 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 the point where we need to get to is that all right. Well, what are some of the practical tools that we can do as you know, bystanders or people that have actually suffered from depression to be able to take that next step in our own lives? Can I take you back to the mask concept, guys? I mean, I, I viewed the mask with young blokes as being almost a suit of armour rather than a mask. And uh, people wear a suit of armour as a defence mechanism uh, because it satisfies certain needs. And, you know, the, the mask develops because that helps us fit in and in many ways it helps us cope. You've highlighted the suicide rates in, in young men. I'm just wondering whether the suicide rate might not be a great measure because I know that young women attempt suicide a lot more often than young men. You know, young men succeed more often. Mm. But, you know, maybe the suicide rate in young men would be much higher if we were stripped of our protective suits of armour. And that's got to be a big fear because it's something that we've adopted because it serves a purpose for us. It's all very well 
taking off the mask, what do you then replace it with? And how can you be sure that the replacement will serve a, uh, a similar protective purpose as the suit of armour has for many years? Yeah. Well, just speaking on, on that piece around, the, the um, I guess, the suit of armour. Uh, so I started working for a bank when I was 15 years old, and um, by the time I was 19, I was a business banker and then a business analyst at 22. And it's when you're a young person, particularly I was, uh, I was uh, you know, a young Aboriginal person stepping up and, and you know, being one of the first uh, you know, young people to come through this particular program. And, uh, and for me, my protective armour was actually a three-piece suit. So I, I, um, I put on the three-piece suit when I was 19 years old and everywhere that I travelled was always three-piece suit. And, uh, and so my armour was actually material. Yeah, and, uh, and it was something I always felt very safe. It kind of separated me from everyone else where suddenly I was, I was protected, I was, I was safe, no matter what kind of... Uh, you know, if I was going into meetings with, with companies that were worth up to $10, $10 million, I knew that I was very comfortable and safe. And, uh, and it's, taking that off, I always felt really un- unsafe and, and very uncomfortable and uh, would fumble my way through meetings and things like that. And uh, and it took a while for me to kind of reflect on, well, was it my time to be able to take that off? And uh, and so for me, when we think about working with young people and, and removing that mask, we're not physically removing a mask or anything like that, but it's around providing the space in which they know that uh, they can identify themselves as wearing a particular mask and uh, and finding the time, uh, their own time, to be able to take that off. So it's really creating a space where they can uh, identify that there is a mask that we're donning, um, but then it's actually up to them to themselves redefine what their perceptions of what it is to be a man. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the way, what you say there because it is symbolic. This suit of armour is symbolic mm-hmm. and um, uh, it, it depends what the meaning is. The, suit, the, the three-piece suit had a meaning, has a, has a codified meaning in society. Mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I reflected on um, this aspect when I saw in the paper a few months ago uh, one of the uh, bikey guys who was going into, uh, into, into trial turned up at court with a huge windcheater on uh, with a massive picture of a growling dog's face on the front of his windshield. Like the whole front of the windshield was a massive, growling, salivating, vicious dog. And that, you know, it was never such a good example of what this suit of armour. This is the, and the trouble with suits of armour is that they're terrific if you've been hit with arrows, but you can't have any movement in them. You can't run, you can't change, you can't adapt. And that's the, that's the thing. Then It's a maladaptive protective mechanism. And I think if you guys can tackle, uh, for our young men, a more adaptive way of meeting challenge and dealing with relationships and feeling you know their own sense of self without shame and embarrassment one of the interesting things being a female therapist is that um, one of the codes for young men I work with a lot of young men and one of the codes very clearly from a very young age is thou shalt not demonstrate uh, in, uh, vulnerability in front of other men um, this is just not it's not just not done you know so uh, and uh, interestingly they can do it much more in front of women and so, because wives know what the, when men cry, but other men don't, you know. So, and and female therapists hear a lot of this stuff when I think male therapists don't hear as much because of these codes of, of rules. And so often, um, I've, I've heard young men talk about the, you know their emotional feelings and and then finish it by saying I can't tell anybody else. Do other men feel like this? I've not, no no other guys. All the other guys don't do this. I'm the only one. And you feel like saying, shit, man, no, you're not. <laughs> you know? On that very note, we might just take a break and come back with the boys. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. 
we are here in a special show. We've got Hunter Johnson and Benson Salo from the Man Cave. And uh, in the studio, we've got the wonderful Anabolics. We've got SK. And we've got the late arriving tall man who's, uh, who came here and, and sort of entered almost silently. And it's uh, what a pleasure to have you in here, tall man. My profound apologies. Um, bit going on at the moment, and to use my favourite word, I was a little bit discombobulated. Discombobulated. And uh, Kent on the panel, and uh, I'm McSiff. And so, um, guys, coming back to this sort of, uh, the notion of vulnerability that Anabolics was talking about before we had that uh, musical interlude, tell us about this, you know, how, how do men deal with this vulnerability? I can definitely tell you from a young person's perspective, and we ask this question quite openly, is, you know, when you think of vulnerability, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And it's often weakness. Uh, and we, we unpack that and we go, you know, what's weak about it? And they go, well, the fact that you're open, which is a f- when you look at the word vulnerability, the definition is actually to make yourself open to whether it's um, emotional or, or physical pain. And um, for me, Brené Brown has been a phenomenal thought leader in the space of um, uh uh, vulnerability. So her TED Talk is one of the most watched TED Talks in the history of TED. And she breaks vulnerability down to three things. So it's courage, it's compassion, and it's connection. And we interload those through the workshops as well. So for us, it's understanding that courage is not necessarily whether it's tackling the biggest guy on the field, but courage is the ability to say, I am this and I believe in this. And we break down that you know true leadership is actually being authentic. And it's it's something that, you know, to this day, that's I'd say that's one of the timeless struggles of actually putting yourself forward to, to be vulnerable and be authentic in, in terms of leadership. And um, for the boys, we, we provide that opportunity for them through the question that Benson um, offered earlier was, if you really knew me, you'd know. And we do an activity where um, we'll, we'll put a, a very short amount of time as, around that question. So we go turn to the person next to you and say, if you really knew me, you'd know. You've only got a minute. So you've both got to get two questions out and understand the next person. And then after 40 seconds, we'll call it off and be like, you know, how was that? They go, yeah, it was good. I felt like it was actually me. You're like, yeah, fascinating that, isn't it? And then we go, okay, so next challenge is stand up and we want you to go and sit next to someone else. You've only got 30 seconds this time to do it. And so because of that scarcity, they don't have time to panic and think about it. So they go and sit down and we go, all right, let's go. And then after that, we, we debrief it and go, okay, so you know, who wants to stand up the front and share their, if you really knew me, you'd know. And um, you can hear silence. A pin can drop. And then it's often someone who you don't see as the traditional alpha role model or someone that we, you know, in a, particularly in an Australian context, that we celebrate being as the alpha, um, that it's not that person that comes forward. And I did this, um, I had a really powerful experience about three weeks ago now. And um, this kid, in, um, he was very, very nervous, put up his hand and said, you, you know, I'll, I'll go. And I was like, fantastic, mate. You're just the bravest guy in the room. Please come forward. And um, he, he said, walked, walked up to the front, very, very nervous, and said, um, so uh, two years ago I was diagnosed with schizophrenia and I, I haven't known how to, how to tell anyone, but, you know, I thought now is as uh, good a time as ever to, to share that. And the whole room burst out with applause. And um, he sat back down and he just had this massive smile on his face. And um, it was a really amazing moment to, you know, celebrate. You know, we get the leadership that we reward fundamentally. And to celebrate that 
as a group without even thinking about it was a really powerful moment and as we unpacked it it said you know how did it feel and he goes i felt like i was actually me for the first time and i was like isn't that interesting again what role did the group play in that and he goes well they clapped me i said well how did that make you feel he goes it made me feel accepted and i think that's a really interesting way and you know the, the, we use this saying um which we um, took from a friend actually from the Reach Foundation who says, you know, we can change the culture uh, in an hour, but we can't change the culture. Sorry, we could change the culture for an hour, but we can't change the culture in an hour. And we throw that back to the, the boys and say, you know, your role now as you leave this room is you've had a taste tester of reality. You know, your role as you know, young people now is to, to spread that as young leaders. Um, do, do you normalise this process? That is, if you took, um, you went into a class or you went into a, a group of boys that had no reason to actually do this. They had no motive, there was nothing troubling them. Um, and you actually then said to them, you know, have you ever taken a, a normalised class or a normalised group of young men through this process? Uh, do you get what I'm getting at? Is it like, so I can understand how this... Oh, I can understand how when there's, you know, people that have angst and anxiety and depression will seek out this type of process to try and feel better. Uh, but what if, what if you just took a grade six class uh, of young kids just getting into the testosterone phase and you sat them down and you said, I want you to tell somebody next to you what who you really are. Have you ever had that yeah, experience? Yeah, that's, that's actually the groups that we work with. Well, we work with um, 14 through to 18-year-olds. Right. And, uh, and these are the boys that um, are going... Are just. In so school. they don't have a priori problem to be there. No, no. Okay. Um, so in, recently we were in uh, in Tamworth in New South Wales, uh, old hometown, and uh, uh, we worked with uh, young boys from three schools, about sixty-two over over two days, uh, from going through the man cave. And these young boys were already part of a program called the White Ribbon Program, which um, I, I, a lot of um, the listeners are all familiar with because it's a wonderful program, and uh, which has a strong focus around ending violence against women and, and children. And uh, and so these young boys, yes, they were they were there for a reason, but uh, they were all from very different backgrounds. So there was young boys that have experienced domestic violence at home. Um, you know, some of the star rugby players. Um, you know, right through to um, you know the academics, and and never ever shall they ever kind of converse. And uh, and so it started off. Um, so with the work that we do, it really instantly kind of creates a safe space where, firstly, there was already that personal link. We were in my old rugby club, uh, which was really nice and. Uh, uh, in a very kind of masculine zone, but you know, the, I was juxtaposed with kind of how we were focusing on you know, talk us about your feelings. But we never actually, there's never at any course during our workshops we actually use the word feelings really. Yeah, and uh, we never lead with that. So the process that we go through is actually it's almost lowering tolerance to to actually getting to the, the those deeper levels. So it's a it's a very um, you know, process. It's a very constructed process in which we go through to be able to allow the young people to feel comfortable uh, with each other. So what we're saying, you know, some of the key questions that we ask, this is actually kind of dropped in over over the course of hours uh, to actually get to that point. And uh, and the one thing that we really um, are amazed with constantly is some of the language that the young boys find. Uh, there's, there's a term called alexithymia, which is you know, not actually being able to have the the words for the, not being able to connect your words with the feelings, and uh, and so one of the words that I absolutely hate is uh, fine. Uh, how are you feeling? I'm fine because it's either it could be positive or it could be really negative. Yeah, it's just one of those blanket terms. Yeah, and that uh, is, I don't want to talk. <laughs> yeah, 
I'm not, I'm not telling you. Yeah. And, uh, and often we'll, we'll start off the day. Oh, how's everyone doing? Oh, fine. fine. Yeah. But, but, but yeah. No, Tom, man, I think it's actually, I think it's even deeper than that. I, I don't want to talk. It is, it's, I, I don't have the words. I don't, I don't words. know how to say what I'm feeling. I'm, I, there's, there's mess going on inside, but I haven't got the language. And so th- that was my next question to you guys was, how do you give boys who don't have the language, how do you give them the, the schools, the, 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 the skills, the tools to be able to put into words feelings that they've probably never expressed before and more that they've never heard being expressed before by the families and the, and the, the social milieu in which they've, uh, they've grown up. Yeah, I think um, f- for one, it's definitely role modelling and without them re- even realising. So when the, the workshop begins, we'll, um, after the, the acknowledgement of country, we'll then just call out to whoever's facilitating and just be like, hey, Benson, you know, I just want to call out to you. I'm really happy that we're here together um, and I'd just like to thank you for your time. So it's great. I really love working with you. So thanks, man. Uh, and it's a really normalised, under-the-radar way of acknowledging Benson, again, not as on the performance, but him as a person. Um, and so for us, it's little kind of droplets of, of sprinkles of magic across the day, but also giving um, the boys the whole day while this is going on, we're writing up, be like, oh, that's a good one for the toolkit. And so we'll have a whiteboard there, which is called a toolkit, that the boys will write down for themselves that they can walk away with. But again, we talk about it, you know, how you go to the gym for your guns to get bigger, or you go to band practice for your recital, or you go, you know, go swimming practice for your meat, whatever it is. We, we talk about your emotions as a muscle very similar to that. So the more you can work that, the more it'll come out of you. So it's a, it's definitely a process of experiential learning for us, um, but we're currently also developing a curriculum that we can then leave with the schools because we understand that you know workshops are a very, very timely exercise. So it's how do we not necessarily... We keep the impact, but not necessarily selling our time. So for us, it's, it's very much how can we deliver an amazing experience, give the school something that they can carry on with, and then we can come back and revisit them. So I think the other thing that we talked about recently too is, is the bystander effect, and so important in what you're saying because um, um, if, if you were in a group of guys like you know 14 year olds like this and you came out and someone said how, how, you know, how are you going today McZiff and you said uh, oh no I had a really bad night I had a terrible dream you know and I know that in most groups of 14 year olds the next thing you'd hear around the room is hey you know Johnson McGiff, you know, McZiff just had a what was a wet dream oh, come on, what a poofed you know that would be the ripple that would go through the room and there's this sort of response that you get the bystander response of, of um, you know telling you that that was a you know cre- clearly a crossing of code and you should not have said that and that's why I think that's the other reason not just the tools it's also the response from bystanders and from other boys and from other men who just don't reward that with anything that other than kind of a bit of ridicule and a, and a challenge to your masculinity yeah well the the final stage which um Hunter talks about in that um the Colin James process is the commit to piece so it's actually you know we we come in we run the workshop and then unfortunately we leave but with the curriculum we'll be able to have a last a longer impact on these young people but at the end of the day it's around these young people taking that responsibility and committing to that cultural change that we need to see within Australia. So when we see things like, uh, or hear things like, don't hit like a girl, what does that really mean for, for what is their view of young girls and what kind of impacts is this going to have? Um, when they're calling someone like, oh, oh, you're so gay. But they go, oh, but no, gay is just a term that we use to describe something bad. It was like, well, okay. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. and, uh, and so when we're saying we want you to commit to something, it is actually a commitment to that cultural change. It's a change of language, it's a change of 
of perception. Uh, it's a, a change of, of being um, within the schoolyard, within the within the towns that we're um, engaging with. So it's all about uh, this cultural change. And I guess as a tangible example of that, so we one of the workshops we run is around judgment, and um, the boys we keep them outside it's after their first break that they have, and that we keep them outside and we we draw a giant an arc on the floor, and we say when you guys come inside, please come sit down within this arc, and we're going to show you a series of photos um, and there's going to be some music playing but while these photos are going on we don't want you to say anything the second time around we want you to just call out whatever comes to mind so that we put the the photos on and there's death metal music it's in the my background. selection benson's, re- <laughs> benson's request and um so they're quiet the first time and then the next time we say we just want you to yell out the first thing that comes to your mind and while this is going on we have two facilitators who are scribing on a whiteboard what comes out and so these photos are just flashing in front of them and it's you know it's uh, funny happy interesting loser weird different pufta gay fag emo depressed and there's and we can't we're just writing more down so we're just letting them go and we'll go through it one more time and they just throw it out uh, everything that comes to mind and then we pull it back and just go great so you know to the facilitators um you know what are some of the words that came out and we highlight the quite the negative words and we're like great so we've got pufta we've got fag we've got emo we've got um depressed we go okay so what would it change for you in this audience if we told you those are actually our Facebook friends? And the energy in the room just drops and the boys are suddenly, it's very real for them. And um, we go, and how does that make you feel? And they say, you know, uh, we're really sorry. And we go, well, what's changed now? Um, and we go, well, they're associated to you. And I'm like, okay. Um, and what happened throughout that process? Did we start off with those negative words? And the, the boys are like, no. And we're like, well, what was the tipping point for us to, to start expressing, you know, those negative words? And they go, well, someone just made a comment and we all went with it. We're like, huh, fascinating that we're so quickly to negative, negatively judge others but so conscious to be judged ourselves. Interesting. Um, and it's a really fascinating process from then on in. Well, I think even on that is around that idea of mob mentality mm. that that comes from this when you see a group of boys it only takes one person to drop something in like we've seen in this uh, particular workshop and uh and it just throws the whole the whole group down this path and uh and so it, our challenge the commit to is well first of all don't be that don't be that person but then also what would happen if suddenly it took like a really positive swing you know, if you if you added something in there around you know something that you really admired about this person or, or uh, called out a value that you appreciate within someone else, imagine what that could actually do for this idea of mob mentality. It could suddenly become like a you know, a really positive mob, and uh, and that can have flow-on effects. We're going to take a very brief uh, uh, break, and uh, then we're going to come back. And uh, guys, I want to focus a little bit on the relationship between men and women and uh, boys and girls and uh, also what happens to men when they get a little bit older three triple ah. you're on radiotherapy sunday morning uh, you're with the a-team and we are with uh, wonderful hunter johnson and benson Saulo from man cave and uh, boys um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, how you, these groups of, of young people, uh, how do they get the sort of the, the language and the emotional set of skills to be able to deal with women? Because we are living in an age where uh, sexual violence, uh, domestic violence, uh, it, it's on the front pages of the newspapers every single day. And... Uh, 
in essence, I see this as uh, a reflection of uh, young boys, young men, having no idea about how to relate to women and uh, never being able to deal with their vulnerabilities. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very interesting. We uh, we run through a, a video with our with our young boys, and it's a wonderful clip that everyone should kind of check out. And it's uh, these young boys that are uh, in front of a young girl, and it's called I think it's called the slap. Yeah. Yeah. And so these uh, young boys are um, you know, saying, well, "What do you really like about this young girl?" And they're saying, "Oh, she's got beautiful eyes." Um, and then it goes through a series of questions around what they like, and then the person behind the camera goes, "Now I want you to hit her." Yeah, and uh, and the boys really jump back. They're really confronted there. And these uh, young boys are about seven, eight years old. And, you know, I want, you know, just give her a slap. And they're going, no, I can't do this. And uh, one of the young boys goes, uh, I'm not going to do it because I'm a man. And uh, it, well, so the thing that really concerns us is what happens between that space of kind of innocence and, and understanding that hitting a woman or um, being aggressive to a, towards a woman is absolutely wrong right through to where we're seeing, I think it's uh, statistics in Australia, that there's uh, two, uh, two per week um, women that are being killed by a partner or an ex-partner, which is unheard of. It's, uh, it's absolutely disgusting here in Australia. And, uh, and so there's that, it comes back to what is our perception of, of girls and how does that change over, over time? And I always kind of think about when you know, growing up, everyone's, that, that kind of insult was, oh, you kick like a girl, you throw like a girl. Uh, what does that tell us? What does that say about society and how we view young girls? Um, there's a really great um, meme out there, and, uh, and there's a, a, coach, a young girl saying, oh, my coach said, uh, um, you know, I throw like a girl. And, uh, and I said to him, uh, well, I can only hope that one day I really will. Yeah, and, uh, and that's <laughs> which I think is amazing. And it's just like, it's changing this perception of vulnerability does not equal weakness. Um, and the things that we've kind of feminized in inverted commas um, doesn't e- equate to being weak or a, you know, a lesser sex. Uh, it's actually um, things that we as, as men are not valuing as, as much as we really need to. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Benson, in that for one of the underlying messages for us, because this is such a delicate space, particularly for guys, you really hold on to their masculinity. This isn't about men are toxic. It's not about shaming men, but it's around, you know, a call to action that we, you know, whatever we're doing is not necessarily working right now. So, um, and for us, it, one of the first exercises we do at the very beginning, which is actually a hook for the, for the boys, is we get them to write up what they think it means to be a man. And on post-it notes, we give them five minutes and they put it up and it's off, uh, and we, when we unpack it it's you know um you know big muscles facial hair um getting head to girls um just dealing with shit um having big dick like really traditional as a schoolyard would celebrate and um sometimes there's little things like you know love respect but they're not prominent themes and at the very end of the day we do the exercise again with the boys and um after they've been through the whole journey and they come up with you know your, your emotions are your most valuable weapon respect yourself and respect others vulnerability is power and the debrief with the boys is so maybe it's not to be a man but it's to be a human and we write HU at the front and it, as you can imagine their minds just kind of blow and um, we're like so your identity is whatever you want to make of it and that includes your masculinity the problem arises is when you use that masculinity to someone else and as, as, as leaders as young leaders you need to take that power and, and spread it, this message as far and wide as you can be I just love that idea because as a person who considers myself a feminist and uh, surrounded in this room by 
other feminists. I don't know whether they declare themselves, but I know they, them to be feminists. It, it often ends up with people um, that one of the edges that comes back when things get confusing is that you're a man-hater. That's a com- frequently used um, comment, not by these guys, of course, by other people. And uh, it's just wonderful to, to hear you say that because feminism for men involves powered men, it involves happiness for men. Um, you know, having I, I see people who've been involved in domestic violence and they're not happy men. They're not comfortable. They wish they were somebody different. They say they're ashamed of what they've done. They, they, they regret what they've done. They feel guilty about it. But they, they, this is what I was taught. This is what I was shown. Mm. She gave me lip. What else could I do? You know, it's just, it's not a place of happiness for men. So it, it, empowering men like this is not anti-feminist. It's pro-feminist. It's pro-masculinist. Mm. It is, you know, pro-human. It's great to hear you talking about this. One of, the, one of the other things when you were saying that also, um, uh, the seven-year-old, you know, asked to slap the girl. Have you ever done that when, and they've been asked to slap a boy? So you, you've actually said to them, tell me what you like about the boy. You know, what, what's good about him? Now hit him. Does it, do, I know that's not quite the point that you're trying to make, but I, I, I'm trying to take this to a, another, a different level where it's not, it's violence Full stop. Mm-hmm. It's not just violence against girls, women. It's violence against the vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry to jump in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think absolutely. And one of the, the, the guarding principles for us, it's around equality. Whether it's, you know, you're a feminist or whatever it is, it's, it's, it's fundamentally it's about equality, you know. Um, and that's something we, we do try to, to, to add in. It's not, you know, black, white, whatever it is. It's we're all here, you know, as human beings. I think it also um, is an element of choice. So, yeah, yeah we, we really believe that with um, emotional intelligence actually comes choice. So you can actually take a step back and really assess. Um, so I recently told a story, and it was um, in the Age article a little while ago, about a, a, a mate of mine uh, who grew up on the rugby field um, was really tough. Like was always the guy that you'd go to when you're in a, a sticky situation. Uh, off the field, everyone just didn't want to know him. On the field, he was he was the god. In, in, and uh, he'd always been put in this situation where he'd be asked to take up the the fight and char- and, and literally truck over people. Uh, he found himself out one night in Sydney, drunk, uh, confronting a bouncer, and uh, and at that point. All he'd ever known, all had been drilled into him, is you get responsibility in your hands. You need to truck over whatever's in front of you. Uh, he went away to jail because he ended up breaking this, uh, the bouncer's neck. And uh, and I'd, I'd had a chance to to connect, reconnect with him, and have a chat. And he felt that he'd never, at, during that whole com- confrontation, he never felt that he had a choice to be able to walk away. He didn't know any other way of being. And for me, you know, one of the things that really drives me is I want every young person or young boy or young girl to know that whenever they get put in a situation like that, there's always another choice. Uh, you don't need to truck over someone. Um, you can uh, look at, uh, you can really assess and, and, uh, and you know, adjust your sales. Yeah. I think that, in in some ways connects with the notion of how poorly prepared older men, middle-aged men, men in old age are to deal with the multiple stressors that confront them in life if they have never undergone the transformative type of experiences that you're talking about. I see so many men who have used their suit of armor, used their protective coating to get to where they've been in their lives, and then they, they reach a point where the burdens are, are at times overwhelming. They've got their, start, their, their health, they're starting to experience a, a sense of mortality, they've got children who they want to try and raise in the best possible way, they've got a relationship 
relationship with their spouse. They've got elderly, ill, perhaps dead parents. They've got those issues to deal with. And they're in a competitive workspace environment. And they have very, very limited skills to be able to deal with this this overwhelming this this cascade of stressors yeah one of our um you know one of our biggest um supporters to developing the man cave have been these older men uh that are in their 45s up to 50 um plus that have got young boys that are coming through that say they say to us constantly i wish i had this when i was growing up because the bigger question then is you know who teaches us to be men who taught our parents or our grandparents who are who young people identify as they're the ones that that teach them to be to be men but who taught them and when you look at the times you know times have changed but um you know for for men growing up that's you know they went through you know world war ii the uh, you know depression so there was a very different context in which you fathered yeah and uh and so what we're seeing now is these uh, men that are in their 45 50 plus zone that have got young boys that they want to be the first generation to be able to do it differently but they don't know any better uh and unfortunately it's impacting their own lives as well what about men at the extreme ends of old age, you know, beyond the 40s and 50s, but in the 80s? Because, you know, if you've defined yourself throughout your life by your physical prowess, by your sexual prowess, by your health, your vigour, your vitality, mm-hmm. your testosterone levels in a way, they drop off. What are you left with at the extremes of life? And uh, older men kill themselves at a much, much higher rate than younger men. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'll use my grandfather as a case study. Um, so he was a, you know, a big leader in the Presbyterian Church, um, was one of um, you know, the leading um, advocates for Indigenous rights back very early on in the days. And um, for him, growing up in that church setting, for you know, an obstacle that he had to overcome in recent times was accepting gay people, um, which has been in our family. You know, my, 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 um, my cousin's just come out as gay, which has been a very interesting process for him to go through. Um, but I think it comes down to the fundamental beliefs of, again, it's this, this underlying theme of equality. Um, and if you are a real authentic person and leader, then equality ripples through. So for us, it's, it's fascinating. I, you know, from a, an elder's perspective, we're always very conscious that um, elders, you know, the knowledge that elders have, and that's a, a you know, that is hugely. Um, from everything we do with our workshops, the elders have almost uh, an authority, um, which we're very respectful of. But um, for us, it's this, this element of intergenerational leadership. So you've got you know the wisdom, experience, and capability of our elders with the the energy and the idealistic thinking, the optimism of young people, and it's that magic spot in the middle where they cross over. There's a really great quote, and um, it says, uh, "A society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they'll never stand under," and uh, and that for me it speaks to this element of legacy, and. Uh, and so the and, and like Hunter said, that cross generational impact. So uh, my back, I'm Aboriginal, but also I'm Papua New Guinean as well. And so there's uh, this really great value that's placed on our elderly, which I feel that in Western society in Australia we actually lack. Uh, we, we don't have that strong connection between you know, our elders and and the lessons that they can teach our, our young people. Um, which would, I, I, for me, I think whilst that element of legacy is really important, just that element of it, the youthful enthusiasm linked with, uh, you know, I guess with audacity but then also linked with um with with measured thought and an approach well guys i think that's the most wonderful place to finish um it's been uh, a privilege to have two young men who are so wise and uh, so open and uh, to share your stories with us and uh, and with the wider audience and uh, uh we feel privileged to have uh, to have had you in here um perhaps if we could uh, just finish off with uh, your um you know what what 
is your uh, the, the contact details for Manspace? Because I'm sure there are going to be countless people out there who'd be interested. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks so much for the opportunity as well to be here Thank this you. morning. Uh, so with the Man Cave, we're actually in the process of um, developing our website at the moment, but we are on Facebook, and so it's just uh, the Man Cave. It's a uh, it's a, an elk head. So our logo is an elk head, and uh, and it says the Man Cave, obviously. But um, the beautiful thing about uh, elks uh, in Native American culture, they represent um, respect, um, responsibility, and trust. And uh, and that's some of the things that we're really wanting to capitalise with these young boys. But contact us through um, uh, yeah, through Facebook is the best way. Hunter? Okay. And I was going to say, it is tax time. Uh, <laughs> if anyone is uh, looking to squeeze any dollars out the door, um, we, do, we are able to take um, donations through DGR status. Hunter, Benson, thank you so much, guys. Um, we'll be back next week on, uh, on radiotherapy, and now it's time for the scientists who are ready to take over. Thank you very much. Whenever I come home after a day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R 102.7. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3 Triple R 102.7 in Melbourne.